So let's be honest, there are parts of the Bible that really seem boring, don't they? Yeah, the pastor said it, it's okay. There are parts of the Bible that just seem boring. You get to chronologies and genealogies and lists of things, you just kind of want to skip right over those things. Chapters 33 and 34 of the book of Numbers, when you look at it, you think, okay, here we go. A couple of boring chapters of the Bible, just going to skip right over those. It is when we get into those so that we discover that there is uh, not only great truth, but the recollection of truth um, that we get to explore. And there's an excitement that suddenly comes up uh, as we dig in uh, below the surface. That we might do that this morning before we read it. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our God of revelation, uh, you have spoken your word and you've seen to it that it has been written and that has been preserved, that we might have such ready access to it today. There are parts of your word that more easily grip us. We track with them, uh, they make some sense. There's other parts that are confusing. Then there's all other parts that just seem dull upon the surface. So we pray that you might take us below the surface and you might go below the surface with us, with us to grab hold of our very hearts. To that end, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit now to bear witness to the reading and the preaching of your word, that we would go away different than when we came because we heard you speak. And so it is we pray for the preacher and know that he is not worthy, but by your grace he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. We are not going to read every word of chapters 33 and 34, as it lists lots of places and names. And in order to track with it well, we're actually going to do it in sort of three readings, uh, chapter 33 in two parts, and we'll look at each part in turn, and then read chapter 34 separately. And so we begin with the first 49 verses of chapter 33, which will go faster than you think in order to see where we've been. Listen to God's word at the beginning of chapter 33. Here are the stages in the journey of the Israelites when they came out of Egypt by divisions under his leadership of Moses and Aaron. At the Lord's command, Moses recorded the stages in their journey, and this is their journey by stages. The Israelites set out from Ramses on the 15th day of the first month, The day after the Passover, they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. The Israelites left Ramses and camped at Succoth. They left Succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. They left Etham, turned back to Pi-Hiroth, to the east of Baal-Zephon, and camped near Migdol. They left Pi-Hiroth and passed through the sea, into the desert, and when they had traveled for three days in the desert of Etham, they camped at Marah. They left Marah and went to Elam, where there were uh, 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there. Then down from verses 10 through verse 36 is listing several different places that they journeyed along the way. Go down to verse 37, and let's pick up there. They left Kadesh and camped at Mount Hor on the border of Edom, At the Lord's command, Aaron the priest went up Mount Hor where he died on the first day of the fifth month of the 40th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Aaron was 123 years old when he died 
on Mount Hor. And then verses 40 to 47 list another several stages in the journey and go down to verse 48. They left the mountains of Abarim and camped on the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. There on the plains of Moab, they camped along the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth to Abel Shittim. As we read these journey points, we see, first of all, the Lord's faithfulness. The high points where Israel experienced the Lord's faithfulness and provision. As we get older ourselves in age, we spend more and more time remembering the good old days, right? When you're younger, you don't spend as much time remembering the good old days because you're young and there's not a whole lot of old days yet, right? You go, oh, I remember third grade like it was yesterday, because it was, right? As we get older, we have much more on which to reflect. We can look back over the journey and see the places where the Lord's faithfulness has been clear. That's the case for Israel. Right from the beginning, the opening stages of their journey recall the exodus, when the angel of death had passed over Israel because the blood of the lamb covered them. And then they crossed the Red Sea. And there are places where the Lord's glory cloud descended in their midst and they received the law, they received manna, they received miraculously water. And so they look back through this past and it stirs up memory of the high points, experiencing the Lord's faithfulness and provision again and again. But then there's also the low points where we are glad for the Lord's forgetfulness or in more biblical terminology, because the Lord cannot forget that he chooses to remember our sins no more. It's a glorious thought that the Lord chooses to remember our sins no more because of Christ. Isn't it interesting that when we often think back to the good old days, we do those with the rose-colored glasses, right? We often are thinking about the good old days and how everything was good in the past. And we remember all those good moments of the Lord's faithfulness. But sometimes as we reflect back, we remember those times when we did things we shouldn't have. And then we remember how we escaped trouble or no, we did get in trouble and it's amazing we survived, right? We're still here. And that's what Israel gets to do. They look back over this journey. So many places in which Israel had grumbled, that they had complained, that they had outright rebelled against the Lord. How many different times did they say, let's just go back to Egypt? Places in which there were those who died of plague in the wilderness, and yet they are still here. Low points of rebellion, turning away from the Lord who refused to turn away from them because of his great grace. And then there is the Lord's quietness, the moments that we don't even notice. Again, there's those high points and those low points of the Lord's forgetfulness and the Lord's faithfulness, but the Lord's quietness are those number of places for which we have no information, neither high nor low points. And if not for this list, we would not even know there were points along the way. And does that not describe most of our days? most of our moments, the mundane, the normal, the everyday. Nothing happened. It was a boring day. We weren't dramatically blessed, but we weren't dramatically cursed either. Instead, nothing notable happened. What happened today? Not much. In God's ordinary providence, we are preserved continually. 
there are moments in either the high points or the low points that we are drawn attention to the fact that the Lord is continually doing something. It's when we hear, especially of tragedies, and people will ask, why doesn't God do something about this? We have pause to recall how infrequently horrific things happen. Still too many times, it seems, from our vantage point. But if not for God's restraining hand of grace, how much more would it happen? The good hand of the Lord regularly protects us from great harm and regularly provides for us everything we need and then some. And so when you see the boring parts like they left Maseroth and camped at Bene Jackin, they say, where and where? I don't remember those places. <laughs> Nobody does. But God was there the whole time. There are a total of 42 stages listed here in this journey. We read about many of them in Exodus and in Numbers, but not all of them. In fact, it is most likely that there was not 42 stages, but as is so often in the case of Scripture, when you have long lists of genealogies and things, the the number is representative. Many think that the representation here is six times seven, which is 42. And so there are six sets of seven stages, and they're about to enter the seventh stage, the final stage into the promised land. Others see possibly three times 14 to get the 42, and that it anticipates the three times 14 generations that are given in the Gospel of Matthew from Abraham to Jesus. Or maybe there simply were 42 stages. Either way, there were low low points and high points and ordinary, everyday boring points, and the Lord was present graciously fulfilling his promises the whole time. So let's go back to chapter 33 and pick up then at verse 50 uh, and read through the end of that chapter. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it, for I've given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. Whatever falls to them by lot will be theirs. Distribute it according to your ancestral tribes. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you will live, and then I will do to you what I plan to do to them. In these verses, we see the 3D commands. Drive out, destroy, and distribute. Let's take those in reverse order. First, to distribute. Again, verse 53, take possession of the land, settle in it, for I've given you the land to possess. Distribute the land by lot, according to your clans. To a larger group, give a larger inheritance. To a smaller group, a smaller one. In that, we see this sort of general rule of equity, to whom much has been given, much will be required. A larger clan needed more land. But with more land will come more offerings. You have lots of flocks and herds and harvest. Great, 
but then part of your offerings will be increased because we'll be looking to you for larger offerings from those larger flocks and herds and harvests. And the plot was decided by Lot. That it is distributed by Lot is the sense of God's providence, casting Lot, sort of like throwing dice to make a decision. Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. It's a great proverb about God's providence in all things. And we note that the casting of lots ended in the apostolic age, so we don't ordinarily use the casting of lots or throwing of dice in order to make decisions. But this did mean that no one could say that there was favoritism in the distribution of the land. They couldn't say, this is a really good piece of land. What, What can I do to get me a little bit of that? Who do I bribe in order to get the good stuff over here? It was decided by providence. The plot was decided by Lot. So that's to distribute. And then we have at the center of this, the command to destroy. Verse 52, destroy all their carved images and their cast idols. Demolish all their high places. Why? Because God is opposed to false gods and false idols. Violations of the first two commands. And if the images and idols are not destroyed, they will still exist and serve as temptations for God's people as you inherit the land. You need to inherit the land, but do not inherit the idols. These idols are the reason the Canaanites are being destroyed. It is because they worship other gods that they will be destroyed by God's righteous judgment. And indeed, what happens is that the Israelites do not destroy the Canaanite idols, but end up embracing them, which leads to all the problems throughout Israel's history, even while they're in the land. God has already warned them numerous times, don't embrace these Canaanite idols. And in the coming years, he will send more warnings, as well as gracious deliverances through judges and kings to destroy the idols, And then other kings set the idols right back up. This is one of those moments where we need to self-check and confess the way that we embrace the false idols of the world. The Canaanite gods were fertility gods. The Asherpoles and Baal stones and the high places were the place for the false idols as places for false worship. But the fertility rituals were sexual in nature. The idea was that you would engage in fertility activities in order to encourage the fertility gods to make your lands fertile. Similarly today, we ask, what must I do to be prosperous and successful? What must I serve that will make me happy and comfortable? Who should I appease in order to get the stuff that I want? We serve idols of personal pleasure and things that promise us pleasure, but are false and turn us away from the Lord. And so the Lord says, destroy. And then is the command and a warning to drive out. Again, in verse 52, it simply says, drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you. Now, this is not an ethnic cleansing It carries the same sense of destroying idols, but the judgment is against the idol-worshiping people. And then those closing words, verses 55 and 56, contain a very solemn warning. 
If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those you allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes, thorns in your sides. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. And I will do to you what I plan to do to them. That last phrase is frightening, isn't it? If you do not drive them out, I will do to you what I plan to do to them. God's judgment is coming to those who continue to turn against the Lord. Recall that the main role, one of the main roles of the priests was to guard the temple. Why? It was to guard people from coming into the God's presence without proper mediation, to protect them from God's righteous wrath. The sacrifice of Christ is not so much to make us okay with God, but to make God okay with us. You approach God without mediation and you are coming into the holy presence of God and you will be consumed by his wrath. And the reason that we are not consumed is because of the mediation of Jesus Christ that we are not consumed. Earlier in the service, we read from Hebrews 10, which included verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raising fire that will consume the enemies of God. The Canaanites were enemies of God, and they were about to find out and to realize that fully. The Israelites knew better, but if they embraced the Canaanites and the Canaanite gods and became like them, then they also will become enemies of God. And so this is not about losing your salvation by sinning when you know better. It is about persevering in your faith. So Hebrews 10 concludes, do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. It connects to the opening sentiment in verse 19 of Hebrews 10. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have that confidence, don't throw it away. Hebrews 10 certainly warns against sinning when we know better because of the damage that it does, but does so in that context of the confidence of Christ. Since we have confidence in Christ, don't throw away that confidence. Don't pursue confidence in false gods and false idols. Instead, Let us draw near to God. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Let us not give up meeting together. Let us encourage one another. Drive out, destroy, distribute by the promise of God in Christ Jesus. Today, we're not called to do that with swords and to actually shed blood, but it's the spiritual battle within ourselves but also the spiritual battle that we do within our world by going and making disciples of all nations, that we might see the idols of the world destroyed and people would instead follow Christ and discover the great mediating that is available in Christ, that we are not consumed by God's wrath, but that we receive his great grace. And so that brings us to 34. And so whereas chapter 33 showed Israel where we've been, chapter 34 shows Israel where we're going. And very simply, chapter 34 starts this way. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites and say to them, when you enter Canaan, the land that will be allotted to you as an inheritance, you will have these boundaries. Then the boundaries for the southern uh, boundary is given. And then the western boundary is given. The northern boundary is given. The eastern boundary is given. And then drop down um, to verse 13. 
Moses commanded the Israelites, assign this land by lot as an inheritance. The Lord has ordered that it be given to the nine and a half tribes because the families of the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. These two and a half tribes received their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan of Jericho toward the sunrise. And the Lord said to Moses, these are the names of the men who are to assign the land for you as an inheritance. Eleazar the priest and Joshua son of nine, uh, and appoint one leader from each tribe to help assign the land. And then those names are given. And the concluding verse says, these are the men the Lord commanded to assign the inheritance to the Israelites in the land of Canaan. On the front of your bulletin is a map of Israel. And in this chapter, we see the detailed national boundaries and also the tribal leaders. And on that map, you see the national boundaries, the boundaries of the whole country, but also the boundaries for each of the 12 tribes. Verses three through five detail the southern boundary, which is the area they know very well, since it's where they've been traveling uh, south for the past 40 years. Verse 6 is the simple western boundary, which is the Great Sea, the Mediterranean Sea. If your feet are wet, you've gone too far. Verses 7 through 9 detail the northern boundary, a boundary that they're eager to see. And verses 10 through 12 detail that eastern boundary, which is where the River Jordan is that they're about to cross. Two and a half tribes that have decided to live outside that eastern boundary. So look at that map on the front of your bulletin. And for all this talk about national boundaries and inheriting the promised land, you would think it to be a huge piece of land, but it's really not, is it? It's roughly the size of New Jersey. People have been fighting for every inch of this land for thousands of years. But here, if someone said, we're taking New Jersey, we'd say, it's fine, it's New Jersey, you can have it. Take Philly while you're at it, right? And it's Israel, because Israel was never able to hold on to all of that land. Even in the height of the Solomonic era, Solomon's reign of power, they never had all that land because of the continued unfaithfulness among Israel. And we look forward to inheriting the eternal promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Why will we be able to inherit all of that? Because of Jesus' perfect faithfulness. Jesus shows us where we've been. Jesus shows us where we're going because Jesus is leading us in the work to drive out, destroy, and distribute. That last part of chapter 34 details the tribal leaders who oversee the distribution, and it starts with Eleazar the priest and Joshua, who will become the national leader following the death of Moses. And then there's the 10 men for those nine and a half tribes who are appointed to help. But Israel in their entire history never possessed all that land because of the ongoing sin. The leaders could blame the people. The people could blame the leaders. But at the end of the day, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But thanks be to God, we have a perfect leader, a perfect eternal high priest, a new Joshua, Jesus, who can not only lead us into the promised land, but who can also win all of its boundaries to give his people an eternal rest. If our ultimate destiny were in our hands at all, we would be in unending despair. But in Jesus the Lord, 
we have a redeemer who has been sent to win our inheritance for us. Look back over your journey and see the Lord's faithfulness. Consider the compromises that the world presses on you and by the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, drive out, destroy, and distribute. Know of a better offer in Christ than what the world offers. And look forward to the end of your journey, where we're going, and the eternal rest that has been won for us in Christ Jesus, who is the truth. And may the truth set us free. Amen.